0: Good morning. It is uh, humbling to be here. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you uh, for having my wife and I. Uh, our kids are being taken care of by my wife Karen. His, or her mother uh, is living in East Lime, uh, so our kids are in East Lyme, being well taken care of, we hope. Uh, but thank you for having me here. It's, it's good to be here. Let's pray as we dive into God's word. Lord, would you teach us this morning, would you rebuke us, would you correct us, and train us in righteousness, that we may be thoroughly equipped for every good work that you have prepared for us. In Jesus' name, amen. We don't just want a present, we want a better present than our brothers and sisters. We don't just desire a promotion, we desire to have a higher-up position than our coworkers. We don't just want good grades, we want better grades than our classmates. We aren't just looking for a few likes to our posts, but we are looking for a few more likes than others we see. We don't just want a good house, but a better house than our neighbors, or at least not the worst house on the block, so that at least we can be above someone. We don't just want our kids to achieve, we want our kids to achieve a little bit more than the other kids around us. I don't just want to be a good pastor, I want to be a great pastor. Now that doesn't sound bad, but it depends on why I want to be a great pastor. Do I want to be a great pastor so that more souls can be won to Christ and he receives the glory? Or do I want to be a great pastor so that more souls lift me up in their minds? I'm afraid it's a muddy mixture. I think we all want greatness. We all want to rise above the pack And we all know there's a recipe for greatness. But sadly, I think we've all been given the wrong recipe, and we've been eating it up for years. Greatness is what we want, but instead we have filled ourselves up with greed, envy, and a double portion of pride. False greatness has been presented to us for years, and we have an appetite for more, so that we might be bigger and better than our peers. The disciples in our passage, that was just read, craved this same false greatness. And Jesus, on the way to meeting his death, gently instructs the disciples and corrects them for their belief of what greatness actually is. And so he corrects them, and he tells them, and he instructs them and us today what true greatness is. In our passage, Jesus gives us the recipe for true greatness, and here it is. The recipe for true greatness is a Christ-like surrendering. The recipe for true greatness is a Christ-like surrendering. And as with most recipes, there's lots of ingredients that goes into a recipe, and we're going to talk about the first two ingredients that go into a Christ-like surrendering. The first ingredient being gospel suffering, and the second ingredient is gospel serving. So let's talk about this first ingredient, gospel suffering. And from the the beginning, I I wanna clarify, the suffering I'm gonna talk about is not the suffering that all people in the world suffer in a broken world. Think sickness. The suffering I'm gonna be talking about and I think the suffering Jesus is talking about here, is the suffering and the pain that only Christians will experience living in this broken, fallen world. Think obedience to God's law, faithfulness to him. Though that produces much joy, it also is very hard to be faithful to God in a fallen world. So gospel suffering is our first ingredient. Why gospel suffering? Why not just say suffering? Well, uh, if we don't join the two we'll miss the point. If if we leave off the gospel here, we will miss the point completely. John Owens writes about gospel obedience. He says, Obedience, rightly understood, is always a response to God's love. We know that from 1 John 4.10 that it says, Love consists in this, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. So I could have said the first ingredient to a Christ-like surrendering is suffering, and I could have said the second ingredient is serving. And that would have been right, but I think for me, and and I think for all of us, it's just so helpful to remember why we're suffering. And if we forget why we're suffering, then we've lost it. The why of suffering is God's, God loved us. That's why we suffer for him. That's why we're faithful to him. And if we, if we detach the gospel from this, we'll forget how to suffer. How do we go about being faithful to him? Even though it's hard. It, well, it's because God has poured out his love on us through his spirit. That's how we are able to suffer, through the Holy Spirit. His love poured out into us. And so I think if we, if we forget the gospel here when it comes to suffering, I know for me, I would, I would respond to the guilt of not suffering enough for him with hopelessness. And it's the gospel that shows me where to go when I'm not suffering enough for him. A pl- uh, uh, someone who, who not only relieves my guilt, but, but loves me, despite me, through Christ. Christ. And so this ingredient is called gospel suffering. Well, why gospel first in this hyphenated ingredient? Well, the gospel always comes first because as 1 Corinthians 153 through 5 says, For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas then to the twelve. The gospel is always of first importance, whatever we're talking about. So may we never detach the most important gospel from any of our obedience. And may we never detach obedience from the most important gospel. Gospel obedience, gospel suffering. They go together or else you end up with neither. In our passage, Jesus doesn't just teach on suffering and on serving. He teaches on gospel suffering and gospel serving. Look at verse 28 of Matthew chapter 20, our passage. Verse 28 says this, Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So he's calling for us to suffer and serve him. Why? Because he served and suffered for us. Gospel suffering. So now we're finally ready to talk about what in the world is gospel suffering. Look at verse 21. It says, "'And he said to her, "'What do you want?' "'She said to him, "'Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, "'one at your right hand,' and one at your left in your kingdom. So James and John, the two disciples here, the sons of Zebedee, James and John, with their mother, approach Jesus, and they ask for something very interesting. They ask Jesus, is it okay, will you just say the word now, that these boys of mine, James and John, that we can sit at your right and at your left one day in glory? Can, just, can you promise that to us, Jesus? And it, that doesn't sound all bad, but, but again, it's all about the motivation. You, you get the sense from this passage that it's not, I just can't imagine being far from you, Jesus, and I want to be close to you. That, that's not what's going on here. They want to be right and left of the most important person in the room Because that gives them a sense of more dignity and and a better position than the other disciples. They have more importance by being closer. So they're after the position, not the person here. Verse 22, you hear Jesus' response to this request. Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? So Jesus here translates their request. Here they are asking, Lord, would you give us that right and left seat in glory? The the most prestigious positions in glory. And Jesus says, I don't think you know what you're asking for. Because you're in for a rude awakening. They're asking for glory but they were not thinking how much it was going to cost them. William Hendrickson says, a prayer for glory is a prayer for the cross. And so we have this cup in this verse. And at times the cup can be a cup of blessing and victory, but here it's a reference to more the well-known, the cup of suffering. Think Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane in Matthew chapter 26, Going a little farther, he fell face down and prayed, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. So their prayer for glory is really a prayer for the cross, a prayer for suffering. And Jesus is asking them, Are you ready? Are you able to drink the cup? And in Matthew, and their response, do you see their response in Matthew 20, verse 22, what's their response? Their response is, we are able. We are ready. We're ready. Someone said that that those words, we are able, to Jesus' question, are, are some of the most naive words ever spoken by humanity. And in fact, they were naive, because we see this story playing out in Matthew 26, where Christ predicts that all of his disciples will flee from him, will flee the scene once it gets real, once the suffering comes on the scene. And in fact, Peter and all the disciples say to him in Matthew 26, Jesus, Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. And then, of course, 20 verses later, all the disciples flee the scene when Jesus gets arrested. So, in fact, they were not able or ready to drink the cup Jesus is drinking here. But Jesus predicts accurately, of course, in verse 23, Jesus said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant. So he's saying to the disciples, James and John, you will suffer for my sake. You will drink the cup. And, in fact, they did. Later on in Acts 12, 1 and 2, we see James becoming the first apostle to be martyred. Acts 12, 1 and 2 says, About that time Herod, the king, laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. So in fact, he did drink the cup. And John, his brother, also drank the cup. He he suffered persecution and exile for the sake of the gospel, we read in Revelation one nine, I, John, your brother and partner in the affliction, kingdom and endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I once read what I call a comic strip. I don't know if he would describe it as a comic strip. Uh, entitled, God Has a Wonderful Plan for Your Life. This is a comic strip filled with satire, but I think packs with a powerful point of truth. So it's entitled, God Has a Wonderful Plan for Your Life, and he goes on to say in this comic strip, if you're a disciple of Jesus, God has a wonderful plan for your life, just like he did for Jesus' original disciples. Peter, crucified upside down. Andrew, crucified. James, crucified executed by King Herod sore we just read. John, lucky enough to grow old and die of natural causes. Philip, crucified upside down. Bartholomew, crucified upside down. Thomas, speared while praying. Matthew, speared. James, crucified. Thaddeus, crucified. Simon, crucified. So for the followers of God, for the followers of Christ, God really does have a wonderful plan for your life, and it really is going to include gospel suffering. J.C. Ryle says, There is not one of you, I say, who does not wish to go to heaven. And he's talking to his congregation at the moment. And he says, But I do sadly fear that many of you, without a mighty change, will never get there. Some warm words by a pastor. He goes on to say to his congregation, you would like the crown, but you do not like the cross. You would like the happiness, but not the holiness. The victory, but not the fight. The reward, but not the labor. You would like the harvest, but not the plowing. And so I fear that many of you will never get to heaven. Jesus tells his disciples plainly right after his prediction of his death and resurrection in Matthew, uh, in Matthew 16, what it will look like to follow Christ. What does true greatness look like? Matthew 16:24 and 25 says, then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me will find it. So the recipe for true greatness is a Christ-like surrendering. And the first ingredient to this is gospel suffering. I think it's appropriate to ask what kind of cost are we really talking about here? I just read you the disciples' cost for following God. Is that our cost? What kind of cost are we really talking about here? Rico Tai says it will cost us believers, followers of Christ, in terms of comforts, careers, relationships, and perhaps even life itself. And from what I've heard, just talking with different people in in this body of Christ at CPC, I've been really encouraged what I've heard as far as there is gospel suffering going on. And so don't take this simply as a challenge. Take this as an encouragement to keep going. I've been very encouraged to hear the work and the serving one another and the suffering for the sake of the gospel here. And and so let this be an encouragement to keep going or let this be a challenge, as it is to me, uh, in your life. So how does one put into practice this kind of suffering? Remember, it's gospel suffering. It's the gospel that will move us to suffer joyfully for him who loved us and gave himself up for us. C.J. Mahaney offers in his book called Living the Cross-Centered Life some ways to preach the gospel to yourself. Memorize the gospel verses, pray the gospel, sing the gospel, remember how the gospel has changed you, study the gospel. And this happens individually, but it also happens here. This is what the whole service is about, is recalling the gospel... And it's this service, it's it's being together that that moves us to be faithful to him, even though it's hard. So we do this individually, but we also do this together as the body, as we experience the fullness of the beauty of Christ. So the recipe for true greatness is a Christ-like surrendering. The first ingredient that we've talked about is gospel suffering. The second ingredient is closely related, gospel serving second ingredient is gospel serving. Look with me in verses 24 through 28. And when the ten heard it, the other disciples, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So what is gospel serving? Our second ingredient. Um, so in our passage here, we just read, the other disciples were very angry. They are very angry with James and John, and it's important to know why they're angry. Again, they're not angry because they're thinking, oh, I wanted to be close to Jesus because I love him so much. They were angry because James and John just beat them to the punch of of angling their way to the position of status. They're angry because the other brother, these brothers are asking for the position of importance that they want themselves to. And so we have a messed up definition of greatness. And Jesus is correcting it right here to his disciples and hopefully to us today. The world has a wrong recipe. Look at verse 25. But Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. See, The disciples here had the same mentality as the Gentiles, the non-believers. And that same mentality is a false view of greatness, a false understanding of what real greatness is. One commentator said, The disciples hoped to replace the self-serving oppressive power structure of the Romans with their own self-serving oppressive power structure. Nothing changes except the names of the rulers. The worldly ambition to be at the top and to beat down others still rules. I think that captures us even as believers today, sadly. And in verse 26, Jesus says, says this, it must not be like this among you. Disciples of Christ, you and me, we, we must be different. We are called to show the world Truth and love, not to live the world's definition of truth and love. And so in verses 26 and 27, Jesus explains to us, though we fall victim on every every day to false greatness, What, what is true greatness? What is true greatness? Because the world says greatness is getting a seat at the table, The Savior says greatness is waiting on those seated at the table. The world says greatness is being elevated among your peers, while the Savior says greatness is being lower than your peers. The world teaches that those who rise to the top are the cream of the crop, while the Bible teaches that those who fall to the floor are the co-heirs of Christ. The world says fill yourself up so that you can be bigger and better than others, The Bible says, empty yourself out so that you can be serving others. So serving like Christ. Look at verse 28. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And the the serving, the picture that Jesus has here, I think is is biblical, is, is is the picture of him washing the disciples' feet. That's what serving looks like. And we know, we know that the gospel is relevant to our past. You know, if I were to ask you, would you like all of your past sins forgiven and dealt with? Then go to the cross. If I were to ask you, would you like your future to be secured in glory? Go to the cross. But but what about those years between becoming a believer? and going on to glory. What do we do there? How does the cross shape our life today in the present as a follower of Christ? What about the present? What about the days and years we have here as a Christian? And and I I think it's biblical to say our present is also defined by the cross. The gospel is not just the engine that makes the serving go, but the gospel is also the direction that we go. Christ, yes, he is our power through this Holy Spirit, and he is our example in order to do gospel serving. Andrew Murray said, Do you love Christ? Do you long to be in Christ and yet not like him? Let death be to you the most desirable thing on earth death to self and fellowship with Christ. In verse 28, we have a word. Talks about what Jesus has done for us ransom. Ransom is a price paid by someone to free someone else out of bondage, out of slavery. And Jesus pays that price for us to be free from the bondage of sin so that we can do some gospel suffering and gospel serving. And and who is it that pays the ransom in verse 28? Look at verse 28. Who is it that pays this ransom? I know the the easy answer is Jesus here, and that would be true. But the title given to Jesus here, who, who is it that pays the ransom? The Son of Man pays the ransom, and that's Jesus. And the Son of Man, we should think of Daniel 7, read earlier in the service. And I'll read it again to you. Who is this Son of Man? Who is this Son of Man Listen to Daniel again, Daniel chapter 7, our Old Testament reading. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. That's who paid the ransom price. So did you get a glimpse of the majesty and the power and the glory of the Son of Man? And he's the one who lowered himself so much beneath us to serve us. And so when he, he asks his followers to be like him, he's not asking something of us that he hasn't done and that he hasn't done way more than we have done. He has lowered himself. He has stooped down far lower than he's asking us. And of course, we know that the Son of Man, by his love and by his grace, is willing to become the suffering servant in Isaiah chapter 53. The high and lofty and majestic Son of Man lowers himself, and willingly, out of love, becomes the suffering servant in Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, verses 2 through 6, read, He didn't have an impressive form or majesty that we should look at him, no appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised, and we didn't value him. Yet... He himself bore our sicknesses, and he carried our pains. But we, in turn, regarded him stricken, struck down by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We have all turned to our own way, and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. I'd like to make a motivational poster this morning with you. And we have our word for the poster greatness. Big and bold, greatness. And think about this poster hanging up in your office, in your home, at your university, wherever. Motivational poster, we have our word greatness. And of course, for our motivational poster, we always need an inspiring picture to go along with our word. And so I want you to imagine a crown, greatness, and imagine an amazing crown, beautiful, amazing crown to go with our poster. And like all motivational posters, you need a tagline. You need a quote. And we're going to quote Shakespeare here to go with our motivational poster. And here's the caption. Be not afraid of greatness. Some are born great. Some achieve greatness and some have greatness thrust upon them. So, right, we've got our motivational poster hanging in our office, wherever. Greatness. We've got our crown, and we've got the caption, William Shakespeare, be not afraid of greatness. Some are born great. Some achieve greatness. And some have greatness thrust upon them. So do you see it? You see the poster in your mind? Now let me ask you, is the crown that you pictured covered in gold or thorns? You know, we've been talking about suffering and serving and the epitome of true greatness, and we are still so programmed to equate greatness with status and riches and majesty and glory, and there is a sense that's true, but here, I think the disciples are so programmed after hearing so many times Jesus saying, you know, whoever is first shall be last and whoever is last shall be first. It's the same concept. They've heard it over and over again, and yet they're still asking to be at the right and left because they think that's where greatness is found. So now do think of that motivational poster again with the picture of the crown of thorns. that Jesus wore on the cross. So we have our word greatness, we have our crown of thorns, and we have the the caption, be not afraid of greatness. Some are born great, some achieve greatness, and some have greatness thrust upon them. So where does this gospel suffering and gospel serving take place? I think three areas to look at are your own home, within your own home, do you have a spouse, Do you have a parent? Do you you have a child? Do you have a brother? Do you have a sister? Do you have a roommate? There are lots of opportunities for gospel suffering and gospel serving within our own households. Another place to look is is within our church, is within CPC, the body of Christ. And, And again, let me repeat, I've been encouraged to hear that that goes on here, gospel suffering and gospel serving. And so let this be an encouragement, if that's the case, to keep going. And then thirdly, look within your city. And that's part of the body of Christ being the body of Christ where they are at. Look within your city. Look at ways of serving in your current schedule. This is not a sermon that says you need to add something necessarily to what you're doing. But this is, let's think about the people that God has placed in our lives and what would gospel suffering, gospel serving look like with them. This is not about suffering and serving out of guilt, but out of love for Jesus who freed us from slavery, slavery from our sin and destruction. This is not about soothing our conscience, but a desire to be like Jesus who washed our feet and even more shockingly washed our souls. Oftentimes you've heard the expression it takes giving up something good for something great. And that applies here But think, remember what true greatness is. What is greatness? The recipe of true greatness is a Christ-like surrendering. It involves gospel suffering and gospel serving. I'll conclude by reading a quote by J.C. Ryle to his congregation. We read from him earlier. He says, today is the cross, but tomorrow is the crown." Today is the labor, tomorrow is the wages. Today is the sowing, but tomorrow is the harvest. Today is the battle, but tomorrow is the rest. Today is the weeping, but tomorrow is the joy. And what is today compared to tomorrow? Today is at most but 70 years, but tomorrow is eternity.